We're going to close out the book of 1 Thessalonians uh, today, if the Lord wills. And it has been a magnificent personal study for me to do this. And I'm hoping that it has benefited you as well. I think in God's providence, as you take a look at this small little letter uh, that was written to a church that it's gone through some stressful times, on more than one occasion, I've thought there's some parallels to what Highland Crest is experiencing and what this church there in Thessalonica experienced as well. And I've drawn encouragement from the living word, just knowing that what we go through, other people have gone through in the past, and we can glean from the benefit there of the word of God. If you have been with us the last few weeks, then you know there's been an emphasis on relationships. Yeah, relationships between the leader and the church family, relationships between the church family and the leader, but as well as the church family with one another. And then over the last two weeks, it's been more about our relationship to the one who has rescued us, to our Savior. How is it that as a church family that we are to respond in gratitude to King Jesus who saved us from our sins? And you, you've observed, I'm sure when you came in today, that we'll be observing the Lord's Supper here at the close of this message. And so as we work through this message, that's kind of the theme. He has rescued us from our sins. He has given us grace to live the Christian life then how is it that we ought to respond to that? If you were with us last week, no doubt, no doubt you remember all of this that I shared with you, that the first thing that we hit on is that in response to this grace that he has given to us, that we are to have a joy-filled life. We looked at chapter 5, verse 16, rejoice always. We said that that joy is a fruit that is given to us that it's centered on our salvation, that we go back to the day that we were saved and understanding that there's a past, present, and that there's a future. And we also learn that our joy is actually enriched in the midst of suffering and that we can pull from joy as we are related and interconnected with others within the church. As we see their obedience and we see them experiencing the blessings of God, we can, we can draw joy from that ourselves. The second response that we are to have to this grace that has been given to us in verse 17 is to have a prayer-filled life. We saw that in verse 17, pray without ceasing. We, We mentioned that this is an ongoing awareness of God, that this is an ongoing dependence of God, and that in addition to that, this is it gives us an opportunity to express our steadfastness, that we never give up in prayer. And then we also said last week, that in response to this death and resurrection, this glorious gospel on our behalf, that we are to have a thank-filled life. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you want to be in the will of God, we said you need to have a joy-filled life, a prayer-filled life, and a thank-filled life. And now we're just going to close out that theme. There's four other things. And, and as I was thinking about this, I do not want to present these in such a way that it's like some old sandbags that are being added to the burdens already that exist in your life. But I think these are ways that we get an opportunity to express our gratitude to God. You know, next week is Father's Day. And I don't know how that goes for you. But I think Father's Day is intended to be able to say, I thank you, Dad, for all the sacrifices. I thank you for all the blessings 
that are in my life as a result of you. And I hope that we see these things, joy and prayer and being thankful in the next four, as blessings of things that we get to do, not things that are just commanded and our noses are rubbed in it. So with that, let's have a word of prayer. And then let's close out this passage. Father, as we come to your book, we realize that this is unlike any other book. These words are words that we need to hear today. They are, they are providential for us. As we look here, we, we will see our own lives. We thank you that we would get an opportunity to observe the Lord's Supper today. It reminds us of our sin. It reminds us of our need for the Savior. And we, we get to participate and be reminded of it all over again. Now, as we prepare, help us to even have a, a, a deeper appreciation as we look over these next couple of verses. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, our relationship to the Savior, to the, to the Rescuer. The, the, the next one that we see here is in chapter 5, verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 8, yeah, 19, where it says, Do not quench the Spirit. So the first three have been formed in a positive way. The next two are going to be in the negative way. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. In response to the grace of God that has been given to you, the eternal life that has been given to you, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Now what does this word quench mean? It means to extinguish. It means to stifle. Now, as we look at the Holy Spirit within the Scriptures, He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God Himself. He is sovereign Himself. We see that He is used to convict man of sin. He causes them to repent in John 3. He enters a new believer's life in John 14. He pours the love of God into their hearts in Romans 5, and He sets them aside for service. But you'll see here in this metaphor of the Holy Spirit Combined or paired with this concept of quench, there is a metaphor of fire. It's like the Holy Spirit is fire. And do not quench, do not restrain, do not extinguish or stifle this fire's use in your life. So let me add to this metaphor a little bit and say the first thing we can know about fire and the Holy Spirit is that fire offers light. The Holy Spirit offers light as well, doesn't he? In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said, But the Helper will teach you everything and cause you to remember all that I told you. So the Holy Spirit, one of the roles that he does is he takes the Word of God, and as we read it, as we are meditating on it, as we are memorizing it, he brings it to our remembrance at opportune times, exactly when we need to know what God's Word says about our specific situation. Fire offers light in the same way. You go camping, at least we do, we use a lantern that has a propane tank and and you light a match and there's a a very white, bright flame that illuminates the tent and, and illuminates the campsite that we have. And he is saying, let your light shine there. However, to quench this, to turn the light down would be to understand what God is saying about a particular situation and not doing it. There's a parallel passage here, I think, in Ephesians 4, verse 30, where it says, don't quench the Spirit, but, but the, the language is so much, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. 
that I think speaks about more of the personality, the person of the Holy Spirit. And in that context of Ephesians 4, you have the gospel laid out in the first three chapters and then the application of the gospel in chapters 4 and follows. And so to grieve the Holy Spirit would be to lie, to have a sinful anger, to curse, to be bitter, to be unforgiving, to be involved in sexual immorality, to be engaged in sin. That's what it means to quench the Spirit. And he's saying, don't do that. If we consider this metaphor a little bit further, fire not only offers light, but fire purifies. You want to purify gold or silver, heat it up. In the same way, the Holy Spirit purifies our lives as well. We could look at Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19 and 20, where God says, I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. So one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he changes our motives. He changes what drives us and what we thirst and hunger for. And so to quench the Holy Spirit is to go back to the way we used to live, to go back to our old habits. And he is saying, in response to the grace that is given to you in the death and resurrection, don't quench the Spirit. The third metaphor I think we could see again here in this fire is a fire not only brings light, it also says a fire offers warmth. Fire offers warmth, doesn't it? I mean, there is nothing like on a cool evening to have a campfire. I think we had a, a campfire on Thursday. The boys had some of their friends from their, their homeschool network over, and we really didn't need a fire. We were already sweating, right? But we, we had that fire anyway, and it just added to our sweat. But to do that on a, on a cold, crisp night, you, you just want to huddle around that fire, and it's such a blessing to, to bask in it, to be just captivated by the flame, Right? But the Holy Spirit also provides warmth, not of the physical sense, but of the warmth of the closeness to our relationship with God. In Romans 8, 15 and 16, the scripture says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Even the most roughest and toughest man here this morning, when they call out, Abba, Father, and they realize the implications of that, that that's the most intimate label we can have. It's the same label that would be used for a little child as they're beginning to talk. Abba, Father, that can move them to to, to be aware of how close they are and how intimate they are with God the Father through what Jesus has done on saving them from their sins. And in the context of being filled with the Spirit, in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, it says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The Holy Spirit can take the truth of God's Word, the the knowledge of being saved from our sins, and can kindle some affections within us. And, And an outlet of that is to sing to make melody, to to sing these wonderful songs. And one of the ways that we can quench the Holy Spirit is by not giving a proper outlet to it. I'll give you another one, the final one here. 
as fire offers power, Holy Spirit offers power as well. Fire is used to heat coal dust that boils water, that causes steam, and that steam pressures the turns the turbine to create electricity. And we are to be filled and to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given to each of us a, a spiritual gift that we are to use to edify or to build up the local church. And we, when we rely on our own resources and our own power back to the flesh, then we quench the Holy Spirit. Does anyone here know what it's like to quench the Holy Spirit? I'm afraid I do. I mean, I think of times where um, maybe just another relationship with my, with my wife, at times where I'm walking very close with her and we, we just are enjoying one another, and then I just do something that's thoughtless or selfish. And you can just, or at least I can just feel it. Like, man, I've just broken close fellowship with my wife. And this is awful. I need, to get, I need to get that right. And I can relay that to my relationship with God as well. There's times where I just felt really close, and then just, just in a moment, I've, I've just done it my way, and in selfishness, I've sinned, and it's just like, that's what that feels like. I, I, I've quenched the Holy Spirit here. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? And pardon me for my imagination, but if, if we had this spiritual sight, and we could, we could observe everyone here as they walk into church on a Sunday morning by the flame that they have, if the Holy Spirit is like a flame, and find out how many are really, how many are really on fire for Jesus. Or how many has that fire been quenched? You know, it's a great thing for us to have the Lord's Supper today. Because maybe you'd just be honest and say, you know what, I think I've quenched the Holy Spirit. What, what, what would you do if you quenched the Holy Spirit? You'd confess your sins, wouldn't you? You would repent. And I would urge you to do that even, even before we take the Lord's Supper today. So, so the first thing that we've read here in verse 19 is do not quench the Spirit. The second thing I think is related to that in verse 20. It says, do not despise prophecies. First, do not quench the Spirit. The next is do not despise prophecies. Now, what in the world does he mean by despise? The word despise here means to consider as absolute nothing or to look down at. As if to say, that right there will bring me no personal benefit at all. And that's what it means to despise. But then it says, do not despise prophecies. Now, what does that mean? Well, back in the first century, there were people that were prophets, right? They proclaimed things. And not all of them were true prophets. There were many false prophets. And today, in this century that we live in, and, and since the New Testament has been closed, we no longer need these prophets to proclaim stuff that is outside of the Scriptures. We have the Scriptures. So what does this mean to say when it says, do not despise prophecies? I think it means at least two different things. The first, I think, is related to spiritual gifts. And that is probably related to the first part, do not quench the spirit. If a person has a particular spiritual gift, say the spiritual gift of the prophet. In our day, that gift of the prophet is not foretelling what's going to take place. That was the prophet of the Old Testament. Today, the gift of the prophet is the one that 
foretells, takes the word of God and speaks very bluntly about this is what God's word says. And God is saying to us, hey, you need people like that that will tell you what the Bible says, so do not despise that. Do not look at that gift and say, that is worthless. We don't need that gift. That will give me no benefit at all. And I think we could extend that to other spiritual gifts as well, right? Within the church, if you are a Christian, you have received a spiritual gift. We need to know that spiritual gift, and we all need to be using that spiritual gift. And sometimes, because we're not perfectly, um, we're not perfected yet, we're still working out our sanctification, you can have one with a spiritual gift over here, and another one with a spiritual gift over here, and it seems like they're, they're in an argument with one another. So you have a person that, as a result of disobeying and falling into sin, you have the one with the gift of mercy, and they're just grieving over this person. Oh, I'm so sorry that you're experiencing this problem, the, 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 the result of, of you disobeying God. I'm grieving because you are grieving. And over here, you can have another person with a different spiritual gift of the exhorter or the prophet says, you're getting what you deserve, right? You disobeyed. I'm glad this is happening to you because you deserve the discipline of God so that this won't happen again. If we're not careful, this person and this person, two with spiritual gifts, could be at odds with one another. So we are not to despise and say, that spiritual gift, that person with that spiritual gift, they're of no use to me or this church. In the fall, as things begin to pick up over here, and football season starts and people begin to park and It's not unusual. In fact, it's very common for us to have some late arrivers pull into our parking lot, some local, but some from the middle of the state. And what they do is they come and go across the street and they share the gospel. And some of these guys will bring speakers. Some of these guys will bring signs. And they'll just proclaim the the holiness of God, that sin is going to lead you to hell, that you need to repent and you need to seek Jesus you need to believe on what Jesus has done. And, and you may walk over there and you hear that message and you might think, I don't, I don't appreciate the way that they are doing that. Well, in many cases, I've talked with some of those guys. I really believe they love the Lord. And they really they love souls. And, and they're, they're, they're passionate about seeing people not go to hell. By the way, what are you doing for evangelism, Right? So just because a gift might not be your gift of public street preaching, we ought not to look down or say, man, I don't, I don't appreciate that. Just say, thank God that there are people that have different giftedness than me. I think another thing that this has to mean here in verse 20, do not despise prophecies, is we just we can't despise the ones that teach us the word of God. We need the word. We need to hear the word. We need the word taught to us. We need the word applied in our lives. And so if, if you don't like what they're saying, well, then the question is, is what they are saying true? But don't despise them. Don't despise the gift that God has given to them. This word points us to know who Jesus is so that we might be able to appreciate the one who has died and was raised for our sins. So I, I have there for the second one, Bible-honored, spirit-led for the first one. Bible-honored is the second one. Now, let me ask you this. 
is everything that is said, those who teach the Bible or those who write a book on the Bible or those who sing a song about the Bible, is all of that always true? No. So let me give you a third one that I think we see here in verses 21 through 22. 20 said, do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So when we hear something, we're supposed to test it. The word test there means to examine for authenticity, to distinguish between real and fake. And as I was thinking of that word test, I thought about going to a gas station and paying for gas. And You give them a $20 bill or a $50 bill, and what do they do? They take it up and they hold it up into the light, right? And they look, I guess there's some sort of a security strip that they're looking for. Or maybe they'd have this, uh, this pen that they use that looks like a highlighter, but it's actually a counterfeit detecting pen. And they, and they run it across that bill. And, and if it highlights, then, then it's actually authentic. But when we hear something, there's, there's a testing that is supposed to take place. There's a a filter that we're supposed to run it through. And it says here in verse 21, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. That is to latch on to what is authentic and genuine and true. So what does that filter look like? What does that test, what does a series of tests look like? John Stott in his commentary I think was very helpful to me here. He says there's five different things that we can test. The first thing we want to test it with is the word of God. I imagine that's what all of us would have said. When Paul and his friends arrived in Berea, they preached the word to them. And according to Acts chapter 17, verse 11, the Bereans examined the scriptures. Hey, is what these guys saying, is it true? So that's clearly one of the things that we look at. Secondly, as we're looking at testing, if we're reading a book, if we're listening to a song, if we're listening to a preacher, the second filter we're using is we're asking ourselves, does this message, what does it say about Jesus? 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have come unto the world, but this we know, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the first thing we do is say, let me see this book. Let me see this message. Does it line up with scripture? Second thing is, what are they teaching about Jesus? The third thing is, what sort of gospel is being presented? Is it the gospel of of God's holiness, of man's sin, of Jesus' substitutionary death, and our need to repent and confess Or is it of something else? In the book of Galatians, Paul presented the real gospel, but he said in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. The fourth layer that we are supposed to apply here is the character of the author or the character of the supposed prophet. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, Be aware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits or or by their lives. And then finally, does this word, does it edify the church? 1 Corinthians 14 verse 3 says, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upholding 
I'm sorry, upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. You know, not all that long ago, someone said, I, there's this book here, and I'm concerned about a loved one that's reading it. Chad, would you read it? Help me to understand what this is saying. Is it sound? Is it, is it truthful? And so these five things are helpful as I read through this book, and I think it's a good filter for you when you come into contact with people that are alleging that they are offering a message that is aligned with the Scriptures. So let me just give you the fourth one here then. The fourth one, in response to the grace that we have received, we are not only not to quench the Spirit, not to despise the prophecies, we are to test everything, we are to be discerning, and then finally, we are to be sanctified. Look again at verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may you whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now we covered this in chapter 4, verse 3, where it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will is to set you apart for his task, to to, to move you away from sin and, and move you towards holiness. And we see this theme of being set apart in the early stages of the scriptures. God created the earth in seven days, and he set apart one day, the Sabbath, as a day of rest. We see in the book of Job, where Job would set aside materials, food, in order to sacrifice to God. We could go on a little bit further in the book of Acts where God said, set apart for me the firstborn. Book of Exodus, rather, the second book, we also see where there's a time where they set aside materials to to build the tabernacle. Aaron, this brother of Moses, we're going to set aside you and your descendants to be the priestly line. King David, we're going to set aside you to be king, to to rule over the Israelites. Jeremiah, we're going to set aside you to be the prophet, to be able to speak my word to God's people. And when we get to the New Testament, there needed to be one that would prepare the way for Jesus. So John the Baptist, we're going to set you aside, and you're going to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus, we're going to set you aside there at baptism. Your purpose in coming is to be the Savior, to save people from their sins. Jesus, you're going to need some men to come alongside you and carry this task out, so we're going to set aside disciples. The church begins in the book of Acts, and there we see the apostles that are up to their eyeballs in ministry, and they're not able to give themselves devoted to preaching the word and to praying, so we need to set aside some servants that can carry out the administrative tasks, so they institute the office of deacons. Then they're looking at the ministry and saying, you know, this gospel is primarily for us Jews. We need to set aside some missionaries to go out and take this message to the Gentiles. So there's always been this pattern of setting aside. And I just want to remind you today, if you are a Christian, you've been set aside. This is Paul's prayer, his final prayer for this church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, set you aside completely. And so what we see here, when we think of sanctification, like we covered last week, there is a past, there is a present, and there is a future component. 
on one hand, we were sanctified in the past. Hebrews 10.10 says, And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. When you became a Christian, you were set aside for God's work. And then we can look at the present of this as well. But let's look at this future where it says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Not only have we been set aside in our past, but in our future we will also be set aside where we will get to go to heaven. It's another way of saying, save my seat. I don't know about you, when you go on a vacation, maybe you order your airline tickets, and there's something soothing about getting confirmation, my seats have been saved. I'm secure there. Or maybe when you get your Airbnb confirmation notice, or from the hotel or the resort, it says, your place is reserved. You're like, yes, I got my place. Well, part of the sanctification is knowing that our place is reserved there in heaven. And I probably more than one of us this week have said to, in our minds, Russ, save me a seat. I don't know when I'll get there, but I'm, I'm looking forward to being there with you. But there's also this present component, isn't there? Where we're moving away from sin and towards holiness. Where we're taking on God's given assignment And while you might not be a pastor, you might not be the full-time missionary, you are called to full-time ministry. You you might not be there at the church taking up an office, but you might be that gospel-fueled grandma that said, God, you've set me aside to make sure that my adult children and their spouses, as well as my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, they hear about Jesus, and I'm going to be praying for them. You might be one that goes to water aerobics at the local pool and you've been set aside to see those instructors and all of your friends there to be able to pray for them and to be able to share Jesus with them. You might say, I might never go to Africa, but I I currently live on whatever, Shady Avenue. And God has put me there to be able to love my neighbors and to be able to share the truth with them. My kids might be in dance, my kids might be in hunter safety, but I'm really there as a missionary. I've been set aside for that task. Well, I was reminded of that just this week. And sometimes I, I can get I can just make things so complicated. God, I, I want to ministry. It, it must be to the refugees. It, it must be to this group of people who, who no one else is reaching out to. I said, I know I'm so special. You, you, you've got something special for me, right? Well, there's a guy right across the street that needs to hear Jesus. How about you start there, Chad? There's a guy right over here that you you need to have over. Why don't you just be faithful with the people that are right around you? And God wants us to be set aside for the task that he has for us. And then let's just take some time and we'll close this book out. We've looked at these four things here where it says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but be discerning, test everything, and be sanctified. By the way, verse 24, uh, he who calls you is faithful. God is, gonna, God is going to do this. And then let's look at 25 through 28. As he closes this book out, I couldn't help but think, there's, this is kind of how I see closing out church on a Sunday. The, the, the first thing he says here in verse 25 is, brothers, pray for us. As he, as he winds this book down, I can't help us 
about think of us winding down a service and, and we're about ready to leave after the service. And how wonderful it would be if we just kind of say, hey, pray for us. Now, there's three different times throughout this book where Paul prayed for the church. Now he's asking them to return the favor. And how meaningful it must have been for the founding pastors to say, we need your prayers. One of the great delights of my life on a Sunday morning is at the close of service, or maybe even before the service, as I, as I look around and I see some of you just praying with one another. Someone has something going on in their life. Let me just bring that before the Lord right now. I think that's a great thing for us to do. I suspect that most of us in this room say, I really want quality friendships and relationships, but I feel the tension between the busyness of my life. I've got a job to do. I've got a family to raise. And I love these people, but I can't really get into these meaningful relationships. Clearly, you need to maximize what you have. But could not one of those remedies be, hey, let's, let's just be quick to pray with people while we can. While we can. The second thing here I, I think we should go back to is it says here in uh, verse 26, says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So beginning this morning, we're reinstituting this as a church. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you understand that this is a cultural thing, don't you? That at one time, I suspect there were men that would kiss one another or peck one another on the cheek, and women would do that. But this is not to be applied today. I think the, the point is, <laughs> I, I think the point is, is that there is some sort of affection that we might show. Over history, it might have been a holy kiss on one another's cheek. There's certainly handshakes and, and all sorts of diff- different ways. I, I suspect even times you didn't even touch one another. You would just bow like this. But I think of what J.B. Phillips said in his paraphrase to this. He said, give a handshake all around among the brotherhood. Now listen, I I get it. We got kids pulling on us and and we got responsibilities that await us at the close of this service. But there's something to be said, isn't there, about let's just make our time. We only get this once a week where we gather corporately. Let's make the most of this and let's, let's see how one another is doing. Now some of us are affectionate and need to tone it down, and some of us are not affectionate at all, and and it's very uncomfortable, and we need to know where one another is. And then there's a third thing here. Again, just kind of closing out the service, there seems to be some accountability here. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. I think what we have here is Paul understands that this is actually inspired. And he's putting that at the same level as Old Testament Scripture. He's saying, listen, I'm putting you on oath. What I want you to do is make sure that this thing is being read to the church. This is God's word. I'm expecting you to do that. And as we're praying with one another, as we're getting to know one another, to be able to say, hey, I'm going to follow up with you. I'm going to see how that went for you this week. When we get together, I want to check on you. I'm going to send you a text sometime. And then we close this book out, verse 28, the very place we began. You see it? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
He's given to us a whole bunch of things to do by way of relationships to close this book out. But he ends it by saying, what you all need is grace. And what we all need is grace to be able to carry this out. I can't think of a better way to close this book out than to be reminded of the grace that is applied, that is given to us, that is offered through the Lord's Supper. So as you think about your relationships, the one I'm I'm mostly concerned about right now is your relationship with God. Have you received the forgiveness that has been offered? Have you received the grace that has been offered through Jesus' death and resurrection? Let's just take some time and let's pause as our music team comes and let's consider that. Father, as we, as we wind down this book this morning, we are reminded of what the church is all about. It is a, a group made up of men and women that have been fallen. They have sinned. They have broken the law. They are lost. And Jesus was sent for them, for us. And what we deserved, he took upon himself on the cross. And so as we prepare for this Lord's Supper today, it's for those who've, who've tasted of that grace, who, who were dead or now are alive, who are walking in darkness and are now walking in light, who are in the flesh are now in the Spirit. We thank you for this. And it's this grace that we received that led us to salvation. It's the same grace we now need to help us to work out our salvation. And I pray this morning for those who've who've never trusted Jesus. They've never been born again. Would Would you lead them to repentance? Would you help them to see their sin? If that's you this morning, I would just urge you right now just to confess your sins. Ask, confess your need for a Savior, that Jesus has died for you, that he rose to life to give you this eternal life. You can do that right now. Father, thank you for this great truth. And we cling to it because we understand that through that you hold us. You will hold us from now through eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.